Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Andrea Scott. Dr. Scott is a clinical psychologist licensed in California. Her primary focus is health psychology, and she's passionate about helping people overcome insomnia, quit smoking, and manage weight. She also provides psychotherapy focused on anxiety, depression, adjustment, schoolwork, stress, and grief. Today, we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, its uses, research behind its efficacy, and how the process works. Welcome, Dr. Scott. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I've wanted to have someone on my podcast for a long, long time to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, especially in terms of treatment for insomnia. And I know that's something that you know a lot about, so I'm looking forward to hearing about it and kind of getting some education about how this treatment works. Can we just first talk about what insomnia is? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think one of the most common questions I get when patients come to me and say, I need help with my sleep is really differentiating what sleep disruption is versus what a diagnosed chronic insomnia is. Almost all of us go through sleep disruption at some point in our lives. There could be various issues going on stress, jet lag, (laughs) just situational events that maybe throw us off track from time to time. That's not chronic insomnia. Chronic insomnia is really diagnosed when people have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or both, or at least three weeks going on for at least three months. So that's the rules of three. It's going on three times a week or at least three months or more, you might have insomnia. So that's a good kind of starting point for how it's often diagnosed or thought about when when folks come in for help. Got it. And I mean, I guess it also depends how distressing it is to the individual in general. Some people maybe don't find it that distressing. They find their own ways to cope or tolerate it. And really it's when somebody feels that it's just what they're trying on their own isn't working is really when they seek the support probably of you or what you do with it. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That distress piece is so key. Typically people are kind of at their wits end by the time they pick up the phone to come seek help. And so they're really eager to get this under control. So you're right. The distress part is key. So when someone is thinking that they want help for this specific issue, how do they figure out how to even find somebody who knows about this? Great question. So a lot of people don't know about CBTI. So CBTI, I should have explained, stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Or insomnia. And so if people haven't heard about that before, or their doctor's not bringing it up, it's really hard for people to know that this exists. So one of the things that can be really great is when providers know that this is an option. Actually, CBTI should be the first line approach for people with insomnia. And so often we see that that's not what's going on. More often than not, people are prescribed medication as a starting point for insomnia. And we can talk a little bit about that in a moment, but part of it starts with knowledge just knowing that this is even an option. But once people do know that CBTI is available, if they're using insurance, they might ask their insurance companies if they have providers who are trained in CBTI. For some, they can search online with that term, but it is a specific treatment that someone would need to be trained in. 
Got it. So you mentioned it should be the first line treatment. So maybe it's important to talk about what data is out there in terms of thinking about kind of efficacy of this type of treatment. Absolutely. Yes. So CBTI takes about six to eight weeks, roughly, and it's very, very effective. So in the grand scheme of things, and in my world, in the therapy world, six to eight weeks is pretty quick. It's not a very long treatment. But for some patients, given the choice between popping a pill or sitting through something for six to eight weeks, the time investment might be a little bit of a turnoff for some. So I think the medication route for some feels like the easier way to go. But research and data, there's lots and lots of studies out there now that shows that CBTI versus medication is actually just as effective as medication, if not more. And that's for a variety of reasons. So if you think about what CBTI offers, it's not using medication to adjust one's circadian rhythm or sleep cycle. And so with that, we're seeing people who are not just treating symptoms of insomnia, but getting at the underlying cause of their insomnia. And the cool thing is, is is that relapse after this treatment is pretty low. We're not seeing people come back for rounds and rounds and rounds of this treatment because they learn what they need to do. And if they stick to those guidelines, the issues don't come back. The rates I was seeing about 75 to 80% of people have their insomnia resolve. Yeah. And I mean, you think about it, medication is just the band-aid, right? But it doesn't really teach you how to deal with it long-term or skills that are going to be that effective. I mean, since we're talking a little bit about medication anyway, I mean, as a psychiatrist, I give a lot of medications, but I would much prefer someone to use CBTI because (laughs) there's this concern that medications could actually also affect quality of sleep too. And so, I mean, the preference is to do something more natural that doesn't affect your sleep architecture. And that can just get you into a different rhythm of sleeping on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think for folks that are on sleep medication, because that's so common, I almost expect for somebody to be on a sleep med when they call me than to not have ever considered a sleep medication. So I don't want to say that people should never use sleep medication because everybody's circumstance is very different. But for those who are already on a sleep medication, I think some things to think about. First, it really is intended for short-term use, you know, a couple days to maybe a couple weeks. The issue is that when people have some success with sleep medication, it becomes very quickly reinforcing, meaning people want to stay on it. And then we get into kind of a realm of dependence issues there. But for those who want to get off of it, and like you said, try a more natural route, one idea would be once you've identified a CBTI provider is to start that taper, of course, with the help of your prescriber, start that taper just before CBTI or concurrently with CBTI. The nice thing is, is it's not just kind of ripping off the Band-Aid from the medication, but it's having something concrete to go to that does work. And so I think when they start seeing those behaviors and simple shifts, give them good quality sleep, they're going to be less scared to kind of move away from the medication route and have success a different way. Got it. So, I mean, I know we don't have enough time to go thoroughly into the treatment itself, but how do you begin with this type of treatment? Yeah. So typically when someone goes into CBTI, it starts with an intake appointment or a sleep evaluation where somebody is going to gather a lot of information about kind of your entire sleep process. So what kind of things do you do right before bed? What's happening as you're falling asleep? How about in the middle of the night? And what about when you get up? What kind of activities do you do throughout the day? What's your history with sleep issues? When did it start? Did anything maybe kind of instigate problems with sleep? What about family history, medical history, mental health history? What things have you tried and have worked? What things have you tried and haven't worked? And so really getting an inventory about where someone is with regard to their sleep 
Also, it involves typically some assessment measures. So one of the most common things that I do is to always look for any risk of sleep apnea, which is a medical condition uh, where people stop breathing throughout the night. And often they go through several cycles of that. And then it can cause a significant strain on the heart. Unfortunately, it can be fatal in extreme situations. And that's a medical condition that really needs to be ruled out and identified. So if that's going on, I might pause the treatment and refer out for a sleep study to see if someone might need a CPAP machine, something like that. But if they already have been diagnosed with maybe a sleep apnea, they're CPAP compliant, and that's being well managed, then we proceed on with CBTI. Or if there's no indication of sleep apnea or other medical conditions, I would feel comfortable kind of proceeding. So the next few weeks after that initial intake, I call the fun part, <laughs> but it's a combination of methods. So for most people, that's going to include a phase of sleep consolidation or sleep restriction, where we actually start to limit someone's time in bed. That sort of sounds counterintuitive to someone who's already having trouble sleeping, but it's actually one of the most effective strategies that helps. So sleep consolidation is a phase and that's intended to get sleep quality up. So not necessarily sleep quantity hours per night, but that quality we want to bolster up. Once that quality is up, then we can gradually over the next few weeks start to increase someone's time in bed. So ideally for a healthy sleeper, we'd love to see about six to eight hours per night. But even if it's under that, initially, again, our focus is on quality sleep. So sleep consolidation is part of it. Stimulus control is part of it as well. So that's a really important thing about retraining the brain to treat that bed as a bed. So learning what behaviors are okay to do in bed versus what behaviors are actually not helping you so much in bed. There's also a really important element of relaxation training. I think it's so easy to get distracted by so many things in our day. And when our head hits the pillow, suddenly all of those thoughts and you know ideas come rushing forward. And so really to teach people how to relax, how to prepare before bed is an effective strategy that we teach as well. And then lastly, I just say for those who maybe hold some pretty concrete beliefs about sleep, maybe some anxieties about it, we do some work on the cognitive aspect and really kind of challenging and educating on healthy sleep beliefs and sleep practices. It's interesting. The sleep consolidation thing sounds so scientific and it sounds like it works, right? So it basically makes someone tired enough to then allow for them for the time that they do give themselves to sleep to really get that good quality sleep in. The goal is to just kind of slowly expand it over the days to kind mm -hmm. of turn into that chunk of time that you're wanting to have good quality sleep. Exactly. And I love the fact that you said it's scientific. So I want to just expand on that for a second. So CBTI is considered an evidence-based psychotherapy. What that means is that this has been tested on lots and lots of people and shown to be effective. And so I really like this therapy in particular because patients really see their progress every step of the way. It's what we consider a measurement-based modality. So there's a sleep diary that's measuring their progress every single night throughout the course of treatment. There's measures looking at severity of symptoms every single week they come in. There's specific calculations we use looking at sleep efficiency and total sleep time. And it's those data points that the provider uses to make those adjustments. So there's no guessing, there's no gut. It's very data centered. Right. Driven by a high component of education too. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of it, what we coined as the term sleep hygiene, right? I'm sure some people say, well, you know, I've heard it all before, but I mean, what are some things that maybe people forget about in terms <laughs> of sleep hygiene that they maybe need to be reminded about? 
Yeah, that's a great point. I think one of the biggest things is that folks say, well, yeah, I've, I've tried sleep hygiene and it didn't work. And I, I think something to distinguish between kind of standalone sleep hygiene and CBTI is some of the things that we mentioned about that sleep consolidation piece, getting a sleep prescription. And, and what I mean by prescription is not a medication prescription, but a behavioral prescription. And somebody who can give you a sleep diary and, and see what your kind of natural tendencies are can help you really identify your ideal going to bedtime and your wake time. So, you know, outside of that, I would say some of the common things people can do to just bolster their sleep is consistency. People have such inconsistency with sleep cycles, and then they spend so much time and effort trying to get it back under control, and sometimes it works against them. So waking up at the same time every single day, can't say it enough, including weekends, which is where we kind of start to bend the rules a bit. For a lot of people, they actually go to bed too early, and they don't realize that just going to bed a little bit later or when they actually feel sleepy, trusting what their bodies are telling them is a really simple thing they can do. But a lot of the guidance is it's good guidance, watching that caffeine use, you know, not having it too late at night, careful with naps. You know, you learn in CBTI the importance of building a healthy sleep drive. So you have sleep drive and you have sleep urge and learning how to kind of synchronize and get that pattern back in shape is really important. So I'd say those are some of the differences kind of beyond just the standard sleep hygiene. How do you approach alcohol? <laughs> alcohol is a really good one and so commonly comes up. Alcohol is a sneaky one. So the interesting thing with alcohol is I think there's a number of people who could say, hey, look, after a couple glasses of wine, a couple beers, cocktails, I can go to bed just fine. And to a certain degree, that's true. The tricky part is that alcohol often leads someone to fall asleep very quickly into the surface levels of sleep, stage one, stage two. The unfortunate part is that it prevents people from hitting the deep restorative REM cycles. And so that's why when people wake up after kind of a heavy night of drinking, they don't feel so good. And so it works kind of in a, in a sneaky way where you think it's helping, but it's actually not. So one of the guidelines is simply, if you're going to drink, you know, keep it in moderation, of course, but also cut off that last drink about three full hours before you plan to go to bed. Right. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking of the opposite of insomnia, which is hypersomnia. So someone who maybe sleeps too much or has a hard time kind of getting out of bed. Do you ever, I mean, I know that's different from the treatment for insomnia, but do you ever work with that? You know, CBTI is not intended for hypersomnolence. It's a really good question because we're really usually looking at people who are getting too little sleep. And so we're trying to get them to expand out. You know, it really depends on folks who are sleeping too long. I guess some of the things I would think about are, are why are you sleeping too long? For some, it, there could be maybe some depression going on that needs to be addressed. For others, it might be an underlying medical condition. So I might actually refer to a primary doctor for a physical and labs and just kind of get to see what's going on health-wise. So those are some of the places I would start but I don't know that, you know, CBTI is not really intended for that. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask. So a few other things. So if someone was thinking, okay, so CBTI for insomnia, there's some apps out there. I know the VA has something called CBTI coach. What's the difference between just kind of doing it on your own, going through the process on your own and talking to a specialist about it? Mm -hmm. Great question. So I love CBTI coach. It's a great app. There's kind of a misnomer in the word coach, <laughs> CBTI coach. It, it's not really there to be your coach 
as a standalone. So I think folks that are looking at it or have heard of it just kind of know that that's a really good piece to do with a CBTI provider or part of your treatment. But as a standalone, it's probably not enough. So the ways that I would use the coach or the app in treatment would be you can actually track your sleep diary data in there if that's easier. Um, And there's some lovely relaxation techniques that you can utilize that are in there, self-guided. There's tips about sleep, kind of just quick little info points. So I think sort of as a traveling companion to help you stay on task, that's a really great point. There's also really cool alarms, not just to wake up, but alarms to remind you, hey, it's time to start your relaxation time before bed, or hey, it's time to kind of get in bed. Like there's all of these these little markers that we talk about in treatment. And so I guess I would just say kind of proceed cautiously. You know, I would start, I think sleep hygiene alone is a really good general place to start for most. But if you're really feeling like that's not helping you fall asleep and or stay asleep, you might want to work with somebody concurrently with an app or things like that. And I guess another question that sometimes comes up is someone says, well, I'm already, I already have a therapist, right? Would I see this CBTI therapist in addition to that? So I I guess my question is, how do you answer that question? Yep. Yep. That comes up for sure. I guess it would be the same as, you know, thinking of other, other doctors who maybe that's not their niche or that's not their specialty. And so in the world of psychotherapy, you, you typically don't want to be seeing more than one psychologist concurrently, but there are some exceptions. So, you know, when you think about something as niched as CBTI, perhaps the therapist you're talking to doesn't have training in sleep, but they certainly see the impact that it's having on your life, your well-being, your mood, your attention, your energy. And so they might refer out for that. Depending on what you're seeing your therapist for, that might be concurrently. For others, maybe they take a quick pause, kind of get your sleep under control, and you can come back um, to the other work you're doing. So it sort of depends, but yeah, it is definitely a niche service. So it's, it's not something that all therapists necessarily are trained in. They also said, so it's a short, it it is not this indefinite commitment to therapy. It really is a very focused set of time. And you mentioned that it's so effective and that research really has proven that. Do people ever come back for refreshers if they need it? Pretty rare. Pretty rarely. Once in a blue moon, I'll have somebody call me and, and say, you know, I'm kind of a little off track and we'll have a quick chat and I say, yeah, yeah, I know. I just, and it's not my favorite guideline to follow or something. It's, okay, I got to do it. And so they understand exactly where they maybe got off course. And so a little reminder, but honestly, it's pretty rare. The really cool thing is that when we teach people how to get this under control and they see it working, it's naturally reinforcing. People are motivated to keep up the guidelines. And so it's a funny thing I often tell my patients is one of the biggest compliments I can get is when I don't see you again. And that's kind of an odd thing to say to people, but it's nice because I think people can see, hey, the investment I make in this right now is really going to pay off in the long run. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get a little bit more clarity in terms of, okay, so someone's on sleep aids because they have insomnia and they are thinking, okay, you know, I don't want to rely on these forever. And I, you know, maybe there's something about being on these medications that doesn't make my sleep feel great. I feel maybe too tired when I wake up. Or maybe there's something about these medications that they just have stopped working as well for them. And so we said kind of this idea that, you know, you could do CBTI on medications, but the goal, it sounds like, is to do this cross taper of as you're getting into the CBTI, hopefully being able to decrease and potentially discontinue the medication. That would be the goal. 
Ideally for most. Yeah. And, and as a psychologist or as somebody who's not a prescriber, I would do that very much in concert with the prescriber. And so working together, maybe sharing some of that education about what I'm doing and then so that they can effectively run that taper concurrently. You know, I think sometimes patients say, well, I have sleep meds and it's prescribed as needed. So I can just do my own adjustment here. Again, I would kind of caution against that because Again, it depends how high the dosage is, how long they've been using the medication and what that withdrawal might be that they might not quite anticipate. So I would say working with the prescriber is really important. There are a few populations that getting off of the sleep medication may actually not be the goal and they could still do CBTI concurrently. So we think about maybe more complex mental health diagnoses like schizophrenia, bipolar, for some very severe depression. Those with seizure disorders are some of the populations I might think about could be an exception. I was just thinking this type of topic is so easy for me to talk to you about in a way because it's so straightforward, (laughs) right? And I think that's what people like about it too, that it's very clear kind of what the goals are. I've just noticed I'm finding this very easy to just talk about because it is, I mean, it is systematic, right? There's just a lot of hopefulness about the effectiveness of it and data to really back it. You know, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was nightmares. So I want you to talk a little bit more about how you approach that and the treatment that you could use for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think when it comes to nightmares, gosh, that is something that can definitely affect people's sleep, their thoughts about sleep, their quality of sleep. And so again, if if someone is having nightmares fairly frequently, more often than not. So this is not going to be your once in a while nightmare that I'm talking about. I'm talking about kind of being plagued by those nightmares being anywhere from weekly to nightly for months at a time. And so it would start again with an evaluation and intake, see what's going on, what's the history, if there's any trauma, um, maybe unresolved post-traumatic stress disorder that might need attention first or other issues that are going on. But if it really seems like nightmares are the predominant issue that someone's struggling with, there's a variety of nightmare treatments out there, but the one I'm trained in is IRT, which stands for Imagery Rehearsal Therapy. And really all of the nightmare treatments that are out there, kind of the, the primary ones, have similar tenets. And that is identifying the nightmare, writing it out, or, you know, kind of describing the nightmare, rescripting, which I'll talk about, and relaxation. Those are some of the most common components of nightmare management or nightmare treatment. And so rescripting is actually a way for a patient who's plagued by nightmares to learn how to change the ending, to learn how to change where that nightmare kind of moves from a dream to a really distressing experience. And it can actually be a lot of fun to work in a rescripting phase of treatment. But basically that work that's done during the day in therapy through practice, repetition can start to change their experience at night. Also the relaxation part can also help with any of that anticipatory anxiety that's often there before bed. So we had mentioned there's a few different treatments. So I guess I'm wondering why you gravitate toward this treatment specifically in your practice. Yeah, IRT is one of the ones that's just got the most evidence. It's been around a while. It's what I was originally trained in. And to be honest, the proof is in the pudding for me. I've used it with so many patients now that have gotten better, have enjoyed it. Again, it's brief. It's only about six sessions. And the beginning of IRT is actually kind of like a a miniature sleep treatment where you're learning basic sleep guidelines, sleep hygiene, things like that. And then the bulk of it is going to be focused on nightmares. So for some, they might go through CBTI with me, and then we do an add-on of the nightmare treatment if it's appropriate. Well, 
I feel like I've asked all my questions about CBTI. <laughs> Did I miss anything? I mean, is there something else that would be really helpful to focus on? You know, I guess one one thing I'll leave you with just kind of an impactful story that that stuck with me. And, you know, it's been really fun to and fortunate, I feel fortunate to have delivered CBTI to so many different populations, our, our veterans within the VA system, in private practice with various patients as well. But one story that really stuck out to me is a, a patient who was on several medications for other mental health conditions, namely depression, and had been struggling quite some time, both with sleep and depression. And actually, over the course of going through CBTI and having success, getting his sleep under control, actually shared that he was able to reduce some of those other mental health medications and was able to just kind of get those other symptoms, be it depression, even better under control. So I just, I can't emphasize enough how important sleep is. It's foundational to our mental well-being, our biological processes, our immune system, our health. And it could be a really good first step if there's maybe a lot of stuff going on is getting that sleep under control first. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because we talk about, I mean, in my work that I do with people, if someone's not sleeping well, they're not going to get better from the things like depression or anxiety that they come in as their presenting issue. And we talk a lot about how depression and anxiety cause issues with sleep, but then it it could go the other way too. I mean, it's really a kind of a bi-directional thing, right? If you're not feeling well, you're not sleeping well, then you're not sleeping well. And then you begin to continue to just feel even worse in terms of depression and anxiety or other mental health issues. So I agree. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that this treatment is just so helpful. I mean, it's just such an important part of mental health treatment in general. And so I don't know why it took me so long to interview somebody about CBT. <laughs> it's so important. Yeah. Well, no time like the present. I just feel really fortunate to connect with you. So, yeah. well, so what I will do on the episode description, I will make sure we have your information in case someone wants to get in touch with you. And then I'll also, if you have other things in terms of other resources, which I think you probably have, we'll make sure those are on the website too. So if someone just wants to learn a little bit more about the process and the type of treatment in general, they can check that out. That sounds great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.